Have you ever wondered why Bible stories are important? They have struggles and victories, heroes and villains, miracles and wonders. They build faith and help us gain understanding. Are you ready to learn some spiritual truths through Bible stories? Let's jump in. Well, good morning, church. <laughs> Come on, I know it's a little early on a Sunday morning, but I think y'all can do much better than that. Good morning. Yeah, much better. Well, I am Chaplain uh, Greg McVeigh. I'm a U.S. Army chaplain, and I get the uh, privilege of just sharing with you this morning what the Lord has laid up on my heart. But before we go any further, let's welcome our first-time guests, whether they're here or present or they're online watching us. So, yep, thank you for joining us. Of all the uh, things you could have done this morning, you chose to come here or to watch us online, and so we say thank you for that. And so I've had the opportunity to be up here a few times, uh, whether preaching or doing communion, and I'm always thankful and grateful to the uh, staff, Pastor Jimmy, Pastor Kent, uh, for allowing me to do this. And so, but let me share something real fast with you. So you may have seen, uh, possibly seen me and my wife Conley uh, out there. We've been working, serving on one of the serve teams, uh, the welcome team. So we've worked the doors outside, the doors here. Uh, a lot of times I maybe go around and counting and uh, the numbers and whatnot. Well, we've transitioned to a, a new team. But here's how this went down. So back in December, I was walking around and I came back over to the door where my wife was and uh, Pastor Kent's wife, Lane, was uh, talking to my wife, which that's no surprise, right? Well, as I came in, I got right into the conversation. And I realized that she is actually recruiting my wife to go to be part of this other team. And I thought, hmm, is that, is that allowed? It's got to be somewhere in the church constitution bylaws that it's not allowed to recruit from one serve team to another. But it's nowhere you can do that. But here was the sad thing. She was recruiting my wife Conley. Guess who she was not recruiting? Me. That has been the story of my life, where a lot of times my wife will get invited, hey, you ought to be a part of this, or you'd be great at doing this. And then usually I'm just standing there with my hands held up like, what about me? Oh, you can come along too, Greg, if you want to. So we are part of the team, uh, and thank you for that. Thank you for recruiting Conley, and I get a tag along as well. So looking forward to that as we transition to serving. And if you are not part of a serve team, let me encourage you to do that. Get plugged in, and it's just amazing how God will use you in that capacity, whatever serve team that he is leading you to join, but also the connections that you make uh, within those serve teams. So, well, we're going to continue this morning uh, on our Bible series, our Bible stories, our Bible events, the biblical events that we've been looking at with, with uh, Gideon, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and looking now, we're going to continue on looking at another story today, one of my favorite stories. Now, I think we all enjoy an underdog story. I love sports. I grew up playing sports. And so I always look forward to that underdog, the one who, uh, that individual, that team that is not supposed to be uh, in that situation. Like they've done something that seems almost impossible and they've made it to the championship, the, the top event, and yet they've won it. I think the greatest sporting event that I believe that God allowed man to create was March Madness. When you've got these nobody basketball teams from college that are sometimes making this big tournament, and they get the opportunity to go up against these mighty, you know, Goliath uh, basketball teams, the, the big ones. Matter of fact, sometimes I don't even know what 
schools they are. I got to pull out Google. I've got to look up, where is this school located? And you'll see how small they are, but yet here they are on the biggest stage of their lives. And sometimes those small schools upset some of those big schools. They pull that David and Goliath, so to speak. But it's not always just sports. What about other things in life? What about when we put a man on the moon? Did something that seemed impossible? Or about other individuals? I think uh, I eventually went back to Abraham Lincoln. I remember when he ran for different political offices and he was uh, failed eight times. Eight times he ran in some type of political office and eight times he never won the election. But guess what? On the ninth time, he won the election to become the president of the United States. And so you can go through our history, you can go through U.S. history or global history, and you can look throughout time and see where these underdogs or these things that shouldn't happen, but they did happen. The unexpected, the impossible happened. And so this morning, we're going to look at the underdog. We're going to look at an event that really happened and see where God used one man, a prophet, to stand up against thousands of people to stand up against an evil man and an evil woman and to proclaim God's word and do what just seemed no way this could happen. So I want to talk to you about this man who actually demanded that the nation of Israel get off the fence. I'm talking about a prophet by the name of Elijah. Elijah and his story is found in 1 Kings. It begins in chapter 16, and that's where I want us to go I want to kind of give a little quick setting so we'll look at what was that true event that happened that changed everything. And so let me give you a little bit of history. So 1 Kings chapter 16 is where it really begins. And that's where I'm going to start with this morning. And this is what it says. In a couple verses in 1 Kings chapter 16, it says this. In verse 30, and Ahab, now Ahab is the king of Israel. Now let me go back even further. This has been about 100 years since David was the king of of the nation of Israel. And at that time, it was a united Israel. We had Solomon, the first, or correction, Saul, the first king, then David, and then Solomon. And then after Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And so now it's about 100 years have passed. And now the northern kingdom, Israel, and all the kings of, of Israel were bad at that time. This is the one who's coming into throne now, King Ahab. And listen a little bit about who he is. It says that the son of Amari did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So now you've got approximately seven kings since Solomon. And it says that all of them were bad, but none of them were as bad as Ahab. And then if you jump down to verse 33, it says this. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is another god, Ahab did more, look at this, to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That gives you a little bit of where we are at in biblical history. It's a bad time for the nation of Israel. It's a bad time. So now here's where we are on the scene. We go to chapter 17, verse 1, and this is what happens. Here's this man, this prophet by the name of Elijah, who just shows up on the scene. It says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Galilee said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
We know nothing about this prophet Elijah prior to this. There's no record of him. We don't know who his parents are. The only thing that God's word tells us right here is that he is a Tishbite. We don't even know where that is. No, there's no history about that place. There's no archeological findings about that. All we know is it's a bad time, uh, a very dark time in the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden, this man, this prophet Elijah is sent by God. He shows up, he walks up to the most powerful person, King Ahab, and he proclaims this, that for the next three and a half years, there'll be no rain, there'll be no dew. Now, you may have never heard of this King Ahab, but I bet you probably a lot of you have heard of his wife. His wife's name was Queen Jezebel. Very evil. King Ahab is bad, his wife is even worse. So that just kind of gives you how bad it was at this time. So now the setting is here, there's, if you read the rest of chapter 17, you'll see now where God is going to prepare this prophet. He's proclaimed this uh, word to the king, saying there'll be no rain, there'll be drought, there'll be famine for next three and a half years until I proclaim that there will be rain. And then all of a sudden, Elijah just turns and he walks away. We're not going to take the time to read 17. I encourage you to do it on your own time. But you'll see how God prepares this prophet throughout this chapter 17 how he takes him by a brook for water. He is fed food by ravens. He takes him into a town where a widow who was on her last meal, her and her son, and he provides the last meal for, King, uh, for the prophet Elijah. And then that gets us to chapter 18, verse 1. And look what God's word says here in 18, verse 1. After many days, that's three and a half years, from chapter 17, verse 1 to chapter 18, verse 1, is three and a half years. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So now God has prepared this prophet. He's ready to go forth. And in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So now he goes there in verse one of 18. And this is what he says. As he's approaching him, he says this. After many days, he came to him and King Ahab looked and saw this prophet coming and he recognized him. He recognized who this guy was. In verse 18 and 19, this is the interaction that the prophet has with this horrible king Ahab. So God had been preparing him, now he's on the scene. Then it happened when King Ahab saw Elijah in verse 17, that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? You see, king, the queen Jezebel, the nation of Israel, all this famine, all this drought, you can imagine the livestock that has been killed, that has died. There's been so much tragedy that has taken place in the course of three and a half years with no rain, and they held the prophet Elijah responsible for all that. That's why the king says, here comes this troubler. But look, verse 18 and 19, here's what Elijah's response is to the king. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. And that you and the nation of Israel is what he's saying, have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. You have followed the false gods. Where did these false gods come from? They came from the queen Jezebel, who was a pagan, who was a Gentile, who brought all these false gods, the primary one being this Baal, brought, him, brought this Baal into the nation of Israel when married King Ahab. And now they have led the nation of Israel to worship these false gods. And he goes on to say this, the prophet. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, 
the 400 prophets of Asherah, that's another God that had been created, the, the, the goddess, the female, the wife for Baal, who eat at Jezebel's table. So here's what the prophet is doing. He's basically building up to a showdown, a contest is what's happening. here. He tells the king, grab all your false gods. Grab all these prophets that lead you all in worshiping these false gods. Grab them all, but not just these prophets. I want you to grab all the nation of Israel, command them to meet me on this Mount Carmel. And it says in verse 20, this, as they got ready to invite everybody, Ahab then sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on this mountain. Let me tell you a little bit about Mount Carmel. It stands at about 800 feet above sea level. It's in eastern uh, Israel, or correction, western Israel. If you've been there before, you may have seen it. It's still there. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea. And on one side of this mountain is, is Jehovah, is Jerusalem, uh, is, is where God is worshiped. On the other side of this mountain, it became a Gentile area. Uh, matter of fact, it's where Jezebel was from. Phoenicia was the name of that area. And so the prophet has chosen this mountain who's right smack in the middle of a Gentile, those who worship the false gods, and for those who worship the true Jehovah God. That's where he's going to have this contest. And as they proceeded to the top of the mountain, I think the nation of Israel had hoped that this was going to end their hunger, was going to end their thirst, because they had confidence in their false gods that it was going to rain. See, I don't think King Ahab had to demand that the nation of Israel come to the mountain. I think most of the nation of Israel wanted to see this contest. And I think they had full confidence in their false gods. They had full confidence in these false prophets. And so I figure once the word went out, it was probably stop what you're doing and let's get to this mountain and see. And I can only imagine too, and I want you to kind of visualize this with me, that here they are, the nation of Israel, and all points north, south, east, and west of this mountain are making their way up to this mountaintop. Thousands upon thousands of the nation of Israel are walking up this mountain men, women, and children. Then you have these false prophets that now are making their way up. And I can imagine that there's some of the, kind of the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the crowd as these prophets who carry a lot of of weight, who are very important people for them, make their way up to the top of this mountain and gather around up there. And then it's probably gonna be safe to say that the king would be the last one to approach And I'm sure they probably sounded some type of trumpets. Something went out, some type of shout that here comes the king. And as they're carrying the king, King Ahab, on the shoulders of his servants, they're they're carrying him up. And as now a bigger, the more the crowd of Israel are now getting away or parting to allow the entourage of King Ahab and his posse, so to speak, to make their way up the top of this mountain to gather there. So here they are, the king, the prophets, all the important people in the nation of Israel are on this mountaintop. And now it's time for the prophet Elijah to show up. There's no entourage. There's no posse. There's no sounds, no trumpets. The prophet just makes his way up to the top of the mountain. Now, I'm sure they were probably parting ways as well because they saw him as public enemy number one. They knew who Elijah was at this point. It's been three and a half years, remember? They despised him. So I think one... As he was making his way to the top of that mountain, they were probably whispering and saying stuff about him. But number two, they knew their own history, the nation of Israel history, and they knew about prophets. 
Jehovah, God's prophets. And so there was probably somewhere in the back of their minds as they're making comments or trying to get eyes on him as he's making his way up that mountain that they also were thinking, I wonder if he truly is the prophet of God. So now I've set the stage. He makes his way to the top of this mountain. I want you to look what it says in verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, so now he's looking at the nation of Israel, not the prophets, not the king, but he's looking at the nation of Israel. And he says to them, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. That's Elijah's sermon right there. I mean, literally that statement is his sermon. And if you look at Elijah's sermons and his messages, when he speaks throughout the following chapters, before the Lord takes him home, you will see that all of his sermons and his messages are very short and pointed, very blunt, very direct. And so he looks at the nation of Israel and he asks that question. He's, a, he's challenging them to get off the fence. Matter of fact, some of your translations, the word is falter. Some translations use the word limp. He is referencing a person who has a limp. He's saying to the nation of Israel, why do you limp back and forth between the true God and these false gods? Why do you do that? And so he is now challenging them to choose one, to stop and get off the fence. I think many times today, that's where a lot of people are. Look at their response in the end of verse 21. This is the true condition of the nation of Israel in their heart. Look what their answer is. When he asked them that question about stop faltering, stop limping back and forth, their response was not a word because they knew they were at fault. They knew they were wrong. So they had nothing to say back to the prophet's question. And so you fast forward to today, how many people are on that fence? How many people teeter back and forth between the true God and worshiping the other gods? Now, do we have the golden calf? Do we have the bells? Do we have those things like the nation of Israel was doing? I don't think so. Matter of fact, I think a lot of Christians would absolutely say, no, I don't worship those false gods. I worship the true God. But look what Matthew 6, 24 says. In the book of Matthew, he writes, no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate one and he'll love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you fill in that blank when the word money. It could be money. It could be power. It could be prestige. It could be prominence. It can be whatever you want it to be. Anything that comes between you and worshiping the true God is false idol. It's idolatry, church, is what it is. And we think we don't do that today in the church, but let me tell you, friends, we do that all the time. And so the prophet Elijah is speaking to them, but also we see God's word and it's applicable to today that God says to us, stop worshiping anything else, but worship me. The true God is what we're supposed to be doing. Whatever it is that you fill in there, you know what that is. And my encouragement to you is to remove that and worship the true God. So now the contest begins. So now the stage has been set, everybody's been there. And so now... The prophet Elijah is going to, to explain what are we going to do. So there they are. So he suggests, here's the contest. Take two bulls and take these two bulls and let's kill them. And then let's create some fire on an altar. And let's put these two bulls, the sacrifices there on the altar. And so Elijah will call on his God 
And then these false prophets of Baal and Asherah would call upon their God and whichever God answered and brought fire from heaven would be the true God. It's Baal against the Lord God of Israel, winner take all. This is kind of like the, the, the battle at the OK Corral, the battle of the bulge. You know, I talked about that underdog, that person, whoever's you know, in that fight of their lives. That's where it's at right here. Verses 25 and 26 says this. So now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose your one bull for yourself and prepare it first. For you are many. Call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. Now, if you read these verses very carefully, you will discover that I believe that Elijah is practicing good sportsmanship. Now, why do I say that? Because Elijah is outnumbered. If you take just the false prophets of Baal, it's 450. But remember, there's 400 prophets of Asherah, so there's 850. He's going up against 850 false prophets. Now, I don't even count him the king and his entourage and the thousands of of the nation of Israel that's up there. It's a prophet right now going up against these 850 false prophets. But remember, this is a sudden death contest. You know what sudden death means in sports, in contest? That means whoever scores first (laughs) or whoever accomplishes whatever it is first becomes the winner. The other person, the other team doesn't get an opportunity to try to respond or counter that. And so Elijah is saying, hey, you all go first. So if they called upon their gods and all of a sudden fire came and consumed the altar, that means Elijah would have never had an opportunity to call upon the true God and do it, right? He's practicing good sportsmanship. And here's another thing to think about. The prophet Baal is actually, he's playing right into the prophet Baal's wheelhouse, so to speak, because he is the prophet of the sun. He's the prophet of, of, I mean, the God of weather, of of thunder, of lightning, of storms. And so Elijah knows this. So not only is he letting them go first, but he's saying, hey, your God is supposed to be the one in control of lightning and fire. So, hey, this should be pretty easy for you to call upon your false God and bring fire down to light the altar. He's he's letting them do all this. But Elijah knew something that these false prophets didn't know. So even though there were 850 of them out there, I think the number is really 850 is still zero. If you take 850 times not one, but times zero, which their God is zero, it's still zero if my math is correct. And so he knew that. So they prayed from morning and received no answer. And Elijah decided to have a little fun at this point with them. Look in verse 27. He becomes kind of sarcastic. And so it was at noon, nothing had happened. Remember, morning to noon, there's no response. So now Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Maybe he is off meditating or maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on a journey or perhaps he is sleeping and he must be awakened. Now, I don't think this gives us permission to, to, to mock others. But Elijah right now is, is having fun with them because he knows, even though Baal hasn't answered them, he knows that Baal is never going to answer them because there is no God, Baal. 
And so he recommends to them to start doing these things about maybe because the God of their God, their false God, is away. He's busy. He's doing something else. Get his attention. So look at verse 28, what he recommends for them to do. So it says that they cried aloud and they cut themselves, and it was their custom. means that they've done this before with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. So the prophet is telling them, you need to do whatever you're doing, but do it louder. Do more of it. But they even take it a step further by starting to cut themselves, and it says the blood is going everywhere. So you can see at this very moment, it is my thought that the nation of Israel is probably thinking, what have we gotten ourselves into? If I'm one of those prophets, the false prophets, I'm probably going to slowly back myself out off this mountaintop and, and, and get away. If I'm the nation of Israel, at that point, I'm probably still curious to see what the prophet Elijah does, but I know there's nothing happening with this false prophet. And so definitely they're now starting to reconsider their stand. Verse 29, it says, And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. They spent all day trying to call upon this false god to bring fire down from heaven to consume this altar. But notice how many times the word no appears in the next sentence. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. You know why there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention? Because nobody was home. Because there wasn't anybody to be anybody. They were a bunch of nobody. So time is up. The prophets of Baal have been held scoreless. They've had their opportunity. They didn't score a touchdown. They didn't score a field goal, no safety, no extra point, nothing. They have zero. So now it's Elijah's turn. You got to love this man. You got to love the stand that he took. And he's going to make sure that this contest is not fixed. He wants to make sure that absolutely, 100%, that this was from Jehovah God. And so the call to Mount Carmel in verses 18 through 20, followed by that challenge that he gave to them, we come to the conclusion of what the prophet does. Look at verses 30 through 35. And I need to read these verses because it explains what the prophet does. He's given them the opportunity. They've had approximately about seven to eight hours to try to get their God to answer, and there's nothing. And look what the prophet does. So then he says to all the people, come near to me. He tells them, come closer to me. And so all the people came near him, and it says that he repaired the altar, meaning there was an altar up there that they would take and sacrifice to, the, to God, Jehovah God before, but it had been destroyed because of the false prophets and the false worship in throughout Israel. So they had destroyed that altar. But it was still some remnants of it was still there. So the prophet repairs it, the altar of the Lord. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, it says in scripture, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the 12 stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And it says that he dug a trench. He made a trench around this altar large enough to hold two sets of seed. And then it says he put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces and he laid it upon the wood. And then he said something. And this is where he's going to make sure that there is no doubt, absolutely no doubt whatsoever, that there wasn't some little spark there. There's no trickery. There's no magic. He says this. 
fill four water pots with water. Now remember, they're in a drought, three and a half years. And pour it on the burnt sacrifice and pour it on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And so it says the water ran all around the altar and it filled the trench with water. There was so much water, not only on the sacrifice, the bull, the wood, but it filled up that trench that he had dug around the altar. He is making sure that there is no doubt. Twelve pots of water total. And then verses 36, it says, and it came to pass. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. What a mighty prayer. It's amazing at this point where everybody, I think, is just eyes locked. They're watching the prophet say this short prayer. And you can see the contrast between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, the prophets of Baal prayed and screamed and danced and hollered, jumped up and down, cut themselves for approximately seven, eight hours. They did everything they could to try to get their false god to respond and nothing. But look at Elijah, simple prayer. I counted the words in the translation I'm using. I counted how many words were in that prayer. And guess how many words? 63 words in the prophet's prayer. That's all. And I even timed myself. I turned my watch on and I timed that prayer out. And it took me approximately 33 seconds to say that prayer. 63 words and 33 seconds. The power of prayer doesn't reside in the prayer, but in the God to whom the prayer is addressed. Remember that, church. When we say there's power in prayer, it's not the prayer in and of itself. And Elijah knew that. Elijah knew that he was praying to the true God, the true one God, Jehovah Jireh. He's praying to him, and he knew that God would answer his prayer. You see, Elijah, remember, he had been prepping him. God had been prepping him for three and a half years. So he knew when he laid down this contest, he knew that his God would answer. He didn't need to go on in a lengthy prayer. He needed to spend hours in screaming and hollering and jumping up and down or cutting himself like these false prophets. He knew that all he had to do was call upon the name of God and he would answer. And look what it says in verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the woods and even the stones and the dust was consumed. But look what else. It even said it licked up the water that was in that trench. It was so powerful, it was so hot, it was so mighty when this fire came from heaven that it consumed everything on that altar, all of it. The writer of Hebrews says in 1229, for our God is a consuming fire. Verse 39, it says, now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Lord, he is God. Lord, he is God. You see, they've been faltering on that fence. You remember? They've been limping back and forth but now they saw who the true God was and they got off the fence and they fell on their faces and they worshiped the true God. Exodus 23 says this, you shall have no other gods before me. I go back to what I said that we can only worship one true God. That's what God, that's obedience, that's what we're supposed to do. But yet so many times as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church, we go back and forth, we teeter back and forth. The nation of Israel had done that again, but they saw the evidence of God and they came back. You can't worship two gods. 
I remember when the Pharisees approached Jesus. Remember what they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response was to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Why? Because that's the most important thing, church, is to worship him. So as I share this story with you, one of my favorite stories, there's four things that I want to leave with you very quickly as we wrap this up. We've seen this story, but what can I pull out of that? What can we pull out of that as an application? Here's the first thing I want to share with you. That all religions are not the same. I don't know where that started. I have no, I mean, I could say it's just from the pits of hell. But we see it everywhere. We see where as long as you follow a religion, as long as you're a good person, as long as you do whatever teachings that you believe in, that'll get you to heaven. This way is fine, or that way is fine. You may choose God, you may believe Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is your way to heaven, but hey, you can't say that I'm wrong because I believe in it's this way or that way. And, our, and our, let me tell you, our young people in school and colleges, they are fed that over and over and over. Let me tell you something. According to the Bible that I read, according to the word of God, there is only one way. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No person, no man, no woman, no teenager, no young adult, no child can come to the Father unless they come through Jesus Christ. And you can see that from Genesis to the end of Revelation. There's only one way. Here's the second thing. This, this story teaches, I believe, that activity and enthusiasm are not always signs of spirituality. It's okay to be excited. I love our worship team when they're up here and how just they lead us in that, that time of praising him through music, through song, and the excitement that they have. But some of the most spiritual, godly men and women that I have met in my life can be some of the most quiet people that I've met too yet they are so connected with God. They are intercessory prayer warriors. They know the word of God and they feel the Holy Spirit moving through them. You'll never see them jump up and down or, or, or run around. So don't ever think that that has to be a sign of spiritual growth and discipleship. We saw that what the prophet did. Mount Carmel proves that. Here's the third thing. The act of faith is not the important thing. Faith is important, but it's not the most important thing. What do I mean by that? It's the object of your faith. That's the important thing. I'm sure that the people who followed Baal had a lot of faith in their false god. I mean, they had to. Going through that drought, they did. But it was worthless. Now, Karen will prove that it was worthless. It's the object of their faith was worthless. The object of our faith should be in the true God, Jehovah. And finally, I want you to remember that your faith that you live by, it better also be good to die by. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is when your last breath on this earth, that means your very next one is standing before the God of all creation. So are you comfortable enough with the faith that you leave on this earth, that you're living by right now, 
is going to be the faith that you stand before God and he says, good, faithful, you're my servant. You have done well. Please join me in eternity. Remember, I go back to there's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. If your faith is not in Christ Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, then let me encourage you here in this place or online, you need to get your faith right. You may think, well, I'm not worshiping that golden calf or some false god, but God hates idolatry. Get your faith right and put it in the one true God. So then you know that your faith will sustain you through this time on this spiritual journey of life. And then when you stand before God, he'll say, good, faithful servant. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for this message. We thank you for your word and what we see from this event that took place there on Mount Carmel and the prophet Elijah. But Father, we're reminded that we need to make sure that our faith is right and that our object of our faith is only in you. Let me speak to those that are here or listening or watching online that maybe you've never made that decision. You saw those that were baptized here earlier. They've made a decision. They've accepted Jesus Christ. They made him their Lord and Savior, and they followed through in obedience of being baptized. Maybe you're thinking, I have never made that decision. Let me encourage you and walk you through to make that decision now. Today is the day of salvation. So if you would like to do that, I'd ask that you join me in saying this prayer. Say, Father, I know that I am a sinner, and I know that my sin will send me to hell. But Father, today I recognize and realize that I need you as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for me, and I believe three days later you were resurrected and you are the true God. And I wanna make you my Lord and Savior. Father, come into my heart, come into my soul and be my Savior. This I ask in your holy name. Amen, amen. Yeah, give a hand.